This is Milton Walters, and you're listening to Adapting in My Grief. I'm going to be talking to people and hear their stories regarding their experiences with grief, the loss of their loved one, the importance of the support they received, and how they've learned to adapt to a life without their loved one. Sarah Del Boss grew up in Melbourne, attended Loretto Mandeville Hall, and then qualified from ACU with a bachelor's degree in exercise science and psychology. She met a young man who at the time was in his early 20s. She loved him and was planning a life with him and was herself starting a very successful professional career. But just before Christmas in 2013, when Jeremy was around 23 years of age, he awoke with an acute headache. Five days later, he was in surgery and life now looked very, very different for them. This story is indeed a sad one, but it's so unique and uplifting in what transpires for Sarah that I really wanted to tell it. And so with that, I'm introducing Sarah Del Bosque. Hi, Sarah. How are you going? Hi there. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, let's start five days before Christmas. How did that unfold uh, all of a sudden? You know, your partner's waking up with a shocking headache, and at first, like probably most things, you probably think, oh, it's just a headache, and then it obviously wasn't. Yeah, that's um, absolutely right. Um, it was actually Christmas Day and we were pretty excited to get up early and open presents and all of those little things. And Jeremy just wasn't himself. He was always a guy that was so excited about little things. And just to see him off, it was probably the start of um, a 24-hour period where all of those little instincts that you have that something's just not quite right started to emerge. So you go off and start a normal Christmas day and were you able to complete that Christmas day? or were you- Yeah, that's when I um, definitely knew something was wrong. I had slaved in the kitchen and that was something Jeremy really loved, my, my cooking. Seeing him just sort of push food around the plate and just seem so distracted I just knew that something wasn't quite right, even though he said he was fine and it was just a headache. But essentially what happens from here on there is that that headache just gets worse and worse until eventually we kind of called it on Christmas Day and said, you know, we've we've tried our best here, but back off to bed. And he spent the night just tossing, turning, never really resting until we woke up in the morning and what was a, a headache that was just emerging became unbearable. And so from there, I imagine you, you're off to emergency, are you? Or? We went to emergency. We made the call. Um, we were both thinking to ourselves, oh, who goes to an emergency department on Boxing Day? It will be full of uh, people, revelers that have had a great Christmas and we'll be sitting there for hours. Just thinking back to that moment when we approached the desk and I looked at my watch thinking, wow, we're going to be here for a while in this waiting room. And uh, I think it was about 12 minutes later, that we were actually through the door seeing the first of what becomes a long line of doctors. Um, I think that's when you know something's pretty pretty up, a beautiful, healthy young man, and you start saying acute headaches, perfectly healthy one day. No history. Yeah. No history. Um, they rush you in pretty pretty quickly and test after test very quickly moved off to uh, the Royal Melbourne Hospital Um uh, yeah, by by the end of the afternoon. We actually had people thinking infectious diseases. We had every different type of specialist. Nobody could actually decide then and there what was wrong. Scans showed some abnormalities on Jeremy's brain, but they couldn't account for why it was 
so big. So what, what these abnormalities were, it was really, really confusing. So the decision was made that the only way to find out was to actually go in and have a look. And when you've never had more than a broken finger before, suddenly thinking that you're going to have brain surgery um, is a pretty daunting, a pretty daunting thing for, for anybody. And what did they find? We found what was called a low-grade tumour, an oligoastrocytoma, scores that I remember hearing that were good news stories. It was something that they thought that they'd be able to do surgery on, further surgery. So the first set was just really to investigate. And all in all, it was a relatively optimistic (laughs) diagnosis, a brain tumour. That's pretty scary. Um, But a low-grade one, woohoo, yay, we can can celebrate. We're going to be okay. Then we had to decide when are we going to have this surgery? Do do we have it straight away? He was up and he was talking. We were happy. We had to make the decision whether or not we would have the surgery before or after our wedding. So we chose uh, because we were able to. We chose to have our wedding day, um, not have you know staples in our head and um, feeling we had no idea what he would what would happen after his uh, surgery. So we actually had a beautiful wedding. Um, in in February, all of our friends and our family there, plenty of champagne, um, and then our honeymoon, I suppose, if you like, was in the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, so yeah, it was actually just after our wedding in February um, that he went in. But there was a little bit of a twist to this surgery. To do it really well, Jeremy needed to do it while he was awake. <laughs> Um, and I and I kind of have a little giggle in my voice now because I remember thinking at the time, holy, pardon me, <laughs> um, how are we going to do this? How do you have a wake brain surgery? Oh, yeah, and we're about to get married. Here we were staring down the barrel of major surgery on Jeremy's brain. I mean, like with most of these sort of diagnoses, I think, I mean, it's just really incomprehensible that, you know, a week ago or 10 days ago, life was particularly normal. Um, and now it's just been absolutely turned on its head. So the surgery takes place. So the surgery takes place. And I still remember this moment where Jeremy's tumour was, was in a relatively safe place. If you know anything about your brain, there's parts of your brain that control your emotions, your memory. Um, And for Jeremy, it was in a part of his brain that whilst it was connected to his movement, it was a relatively safe place. As we led up to the day of his surgery, the fact that he was going to be awake, um, all of these different things. I remember looking at Jeremy, I remember looking at him and saying, darling, I'm not worried. You know me, you know all this stuff that I harp on about at work, about our brains and how they work, yours is in a safe spot. So you don't have to worry until I'm worried and I'm not worried. And then he said to me, but I'm going to be awake having brain surgery. I said, yeah, okay, all right, we're allowed to be a little bit worried. Um, So anyway, he went in for surgery and he comes out of it better than anybody could have imagined. Yep, there was some weakness down his left side, but he'd nailed it. Uh, Post that then, you're obviously thinking this is good, prognosis is obviously looking better, Um, you know, all the sort of critical signs are are pointing in the right direction. I mean, what transpires then going forward? A month after his surgery, it was almost like nothing had happened. We defied the odds. And then 
I remember that night we were going to have some friends for a birthday celebration and I just looked at Jeremy and I knew. He said, oh, oh, it's fine. I've got a little bit of a headache, but it's nothing. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't cancel something else on him. I knew in my heart of hearts that he shouldn't have the birthday the next day, that we probably should go to the hospital. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not going to cancel something else. We'd cancelled our honeymoon. We'd gone to the Royal Melbourne Hospital instead. He, one more day. He can have another day. So we did. We had a beautiful celebration for his birthday. And then on the Monday, we went in to see our neurosurgeon. And he had so much pressure building up in his brain that they actually nearly didn't leave, let us leave the um, appointment. I begged her. I begged her and begged her and said, hey, can we just go home? get our clothes, and I promise you I'll bring him back. She said, yep, okay, bring him back, but he is coming back tonight. Wow. Um, I think they call it a debulking, and they went in there, and there was no be careful of the little margins. There was no being delicate. It was get out as much as you can and save him. Right. And so this time he wakes up from the surgery and he can't move any part of his body, down the left side. That was probably one of the hardest moments that I remember. There was half of him that wasn't able to move. So is 2014 then in and out of treatments, rehabilitation, uh, radiation, just doing the do? Just doing the do. Um, it's, it's also the year that we got married. So it's one of our favourites. It's the year that I watched my husband learn how to walk again. It's incredible. It's probably one of the most defining years of all of his story that you just go, wow, what a human being. So when you sort of roll into the next year, into 2015, I mean, is is there any sort of respite from treatment and, you know, like glimmers of hope that we are back on track or, I mean, how did it sort of you know, progress from there? 2015 was the best. We had done our radiation. Everything was looking great. 2015, we went on the honeymoon that we weren't able to I had go on. a feeling on. you're going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, in fact, we arrived in the beautiful streets of, of Paris um, exactly one year later. So on the 22nd of uh, February 2015, we were in Paris where we were supposed to be. We were back. We were the young happy, healthy couple that had survived a brain tumour and we were getting ready for our life to start again. We came back, we saw the specialist and sure enough, the tumour had grown. I remember Jeremy saying, but, but how is this possible? And I said, it's okay. We've done this two, three times now. We're going to be all right. Let's, let's keep going. And, you know, this is where, you know, a young couple early in our 20s, we've just married, we're starting to think about families and, you know, life together, find ourselves preserving the opportunity to have, um, to have kids. It was, you know, one of Jeremy's greatest 
desires to start a family and, and, and mine too. So so when you're saying preserving you know, the opportunity to have a life, are we talking about capturing of sperm and freezing of sperm? Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. Were you working at this? Were you at Price Waterhouse at this stage? I mean, Yeah, so I was, um, I was at PwC and um, I started at PwC just after we came back from our honeymoon. So oh, right. I remember um, – actually fantastic um, orientation process they were sending me emails um you know as we were as we were getting back from our trip and getting ready to start you know a fantastic career um you know with pwc it's um it's an amazing organization and you know we were excited we you know we'd had the honeymoon mm. we were treat we'd finished treatment mm. so that we thought i was starting a, a brand new job I, I call it my big girl job i was starting my big girl job mm. um you know Jeremy was working and, you know, he was starting to get promoted and these types of things. Everything was set up in 2015 to, you know, be our year. And for for most of it, we thought we were on track um, until we weren't. Yeah, it's um, – so – what were PwC like during that time? I mean, this is, I mean, obviously an extraordinary difficult time. There's a, a, a sense of impending um, conclusion to Jeremy's life, but there's what I would call anticipatory grief that's starting to kick in, but you're working in a new role. And what were they like, PwC, at that time? They were amazing. Um, PwC, um, you know, is a big organisation and it, it, you might be think that it's a place that you could get lost. But, you know, for me, I had an incredible team of people around me and, you know what, they were part of all of the stories. Um, and I think that's something that was so important. You know, they would ask, how's Jeremy going? Um, right. You know, what's, you know, what's happening with treatment? Um, you know, by default, we're really naturally optimistic and enthusiastic people and they shared that optimism and enthusiasm with me um you know my little analogies that i'd make about you know successful treatment days or whatever it was they were they were part of that and equally you know let me be at work to work um because i love my job i love um you know being in learning and development i love people and they let me be there and do that to the best of my ability Equally, if there were times, and there was one really significant moment where I got a phone call at work, Jeremy was at work himself, and he'd gone down to get his his coffee, and he'd had a fall. And where was he working? So he was working at Purple Learning. So he's a, he was a senior graphic designer. Right. Um, they called me. Look, he's he's fallen over in the street, and he's really he's really knocked himself rotten here. Um, we're going to take him to the hospital. I was sitting at my desk. And I said, guys, I've just got to go. Before I'd even said I have to go, you know, they'd, they'd packed up my computer for me. They were, they'd You're get in, out the door. Get out yes. the door. You've got to go where yeah. you need to be. Um, and so, that was I mean, that, so incredibly supportive. Incredibly in supportive. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so back to where we started the question with, I suppose, was when did, uh, how did it unfold for the end for Jeremy? He never really recovered from that fall. That was um, that was when um, things really changed for for Jeremy. If I think back to to it, it was seeing his family. He had his family overseas, and you know this is when people started flying to Australia to 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 see him. We had Christmas. There was for some reason Christmas is <laughs> seems to be a, a very significant time for 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 all of our our major milestones. Um, I could really tell that um, people were starting to maybe starting to realise 
for me, I had always had in the back of my mind that this might not um, be the outcome that we wanted. And so for me, it's interesting. I think the, the grieving process probably probably starts in 2015 before he's even passed away. And I remember having a conversation with his oncologist. We'd gotten some more results back and nobody had ever said it to us, but I needed to hear it. And I, I asked flat out, I said, just, just tell me, how, how long do we have? And he said, three months, maybe right. six. And I remember being in the bathroom and just having silent tears roll down my face. I was actually looking in the mirror. <laughs> and Jeremy was out in the kitchen. We had, we had his family over for dinner. And I wiped up the tears and I walked back out. And they said, oh, who was on the phone? I said, oh, I think I lied. I think I said it was someone from work. But I had the information that I needed to make sure that whatever transpired, whether it was three months or six months, or we were going to be that fairy tale story, I now had the information that I needed to make sure that whatever happened from now on was all about Jeremy. So at the age of 26 years of age, uh, Jeremy dies. Yep. Um, and I know what sort of that is like for losing um, a partner. Um, what transpired for you in terms of um, you know, the, the days, weeks, months after Jeremy died, which was in 2016? Yeah, that's right. So Jeremy passed away at home, um, which was actually possibly one of the best things that we could have hoped right. for. Okay. He didn't want to be in hospitals. Funnily enough, it was actually a little bit of a surprise. Um, he just didn't wake up. What transpires after that is it's it's so interesting. It You can remember nearly every single detail and none of them at all. Mm. The biggest thing that I remember is just how quiet the house was. Mm. But at the same time, I remember how full the house was of our family, of our friends. Um, you're probably not supposed to say things like this, but I'm pretty sure – we we bought all of the champagne um, <laughs> that existed in in our local area of Hawthorne. Um, people just kept coming on that mm. day, and we did. We drank champagne because he wasn't in any more pain, um, and and he was loved, and he was young, and we we just wanted to fill the house with love and laughter because that's what he enjoyed. And it's interesting, you know, how many people are around you in that sort of those, those first few moments, the, the weeks that come, everybody's around you. The house is full of people. Yeah. And it's only in hindsight that I look back and realise, you know, the moment that that stops – and it's not because people are doing the wrong thing. It's just because life moves on, continues. Mm. Life continues. Mm. But there's this great big hole that's missing for you. Mm. And 
I remember, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily a significant milestone day or, um, you know, an anniversary of something that was hard. It was a random Sunday afternoon when I was at home on my own and that house was so quiet. Mm. People are trying to help you to you know, move forward. forward. Mm. Um, and I hate the expression move on, um, but they're trying to help you to move forward. Um, so you start to do things like return to work. How long did you, was it until you returned to work? Um, so for me personally, as I said, um, you know, I, I love my job. I love um, being in learning and development. I love people. I love supporting um, the development of others, of leaders. Um, and so for me, coming back to work seemed like a really, really sensible thing to do. I think I had roughly four to maybe about four weeks off, um, which is the longest I've ever had off. I've always been a bit of a workaholic. So coming back was something that was really important for me. I had three weeks and uh, I look back on that and think to myself now, that was absolutely laughable because um, I just thought, you know, running a business that it'd be great to get back in and get amongst it and, and distraction and what have you. And I think that's very true um, and it's obviously very different for, for people, different for different people. But, um, you know, you... <laughs> You can't normalise this seismic thing that's happened in your life by just going back to work and thinking things are going to be normal because, I mean, it's as hard as it is for you. It's extraordinarily difficult for people that are there. So did you find that, you know, at Price Waterhouse that, um, you know, it was challenging, not, not so much for you but for the environment of people and how they reacted with you? Yeah, um, this is um, when we actually were in our older offices. So if you can picture... You know, the big long corridors with everybody's got their office and right. the, the cubicle, you know, almost the little accountants in their, yep. their cubicles. And I remember walking in um, that f even just that first day and I just I, – I could see people, um, you know, just that anticipation on their face and they look at you trying to find the signs. Will she burst into tears? Um, is she – mad and now she's laughing 24 7 what 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 cue or, or do the I... nearest exit points so they don't have to come near you exactly <laughs> um and people um you know as i said people were wonderful i mean they my my leaders were there at, at jeremy's funeral there were friends i've got lots of you know people i felt very comfortable walking back in there knowing that i would be um supported but some really odd things um transpired in those in those first few weeks people that um had never really said hello to me, suddenly started hugging me. That, that was a weird day. Um, and then, you know, people would sort of tiptoe around on, on eggshells and, um, you know, I found that it really needed to, needed to be me that, um, you know, I don't know, guided them through it. It was really odd when really you want, you probably need somebody to say, you know, just, just to ask. Because one of the, I, I think one of the challenging things in the conversation I've been having with people and um, and just ob observe, observation over time is that if you, as the one who is grieving, are exhibiting the fact that you're okay um, outwardly, everyone just picks up on that and so they don't come near you. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's great. You know, we can just, you know, don't have to ask. And was that something that occurred to you? Yeah, it was... Um you know, as you say, you know, in in retrospect, you look back and go, "Wow, what what the hell was I doing at work four weeks later?" Mm. Um, but for the most part, 
it was I was okay at work. Mm. I um you know I had I needed purpose. I needed to, you know, I put 100% of my being into looking after my husband and all of that had in an instant disappeared. I had so many hours in my life right. left. And so what I found um, going back is that I actually did feel really great being back at work. Right. And because of that, people kind of went, oh, phew, oh, off the hook. I don't think she's going to burst into tears. Ripper, fantastic. Yeah. All right, let's just let's just keep going. Business as usual. Business as usual. Mm. Business as usual. And um, and that's not to um, to say that people, you know, you closer you closer friends than colleagues that didn't mm. sort of touch base, didn't say, you know, you're right today or or what have you. But um, yeah, for the most part, people look at you, go, yep, you're all sweet. So let's just it's roll over. it on a bit. Three months down the track, um, you know, are people checking in with you? I mean, are any conversations being had into your well-being, or were you literally, you know, it was like. You're okay. Everything's great. Keep yeah. moving. Yeah. So this is yeah, absolutely. It was um, you know the the conversation. It's similar to just after somebody has passed away. Mm. Everybody gets around you in those first initial few days, weeks. Mm. You know, family, etc. Um, and similarly at the workplace. Mm. You know, oh, we've weathered the storm. Um, she's been back a month now. Oh, great. No yes. tears. No no upsets. No decline in performance. Um, that we are aware of, fantastic. Um, we're done. It's over. Yes. It's all over now. <laughs> we did it. Yay. Um, and it's this is the moment that as soon as I suppose those things, those those check-in meetings, those you know offers of support, it's when you least expect it. Yes. That grief can uh, manifest. Well, that's, Again. Uh, well, it has no, it, it doesn't have a set time to come in that's and right. uh, yeah, jump on you. Really, does I mean, I stupidly was uh, in Los Angeles uh, three to four weeks after uh, Bernadette's death, and I was delivering a board paper uh, to the board, and I hadn't done a anywhere near the you know the necessary preparation for it, and and you know, and I was beating myself up for that. And when I look back on that now, I'm thinking. What the hell was I even being expected to yeah. deliver a board paper and talk to cash flow numbers and budgets and that when my wife had just died? But yeah. I think it was probably because I was exhibiting yes. the fact that I looked okay, I was talking okay, but you know, inside it was just this you know turmoil. Yeah. You know, I um I uh, plug for for Qantas and their emotive um pub um. Uh, advert advertising i am um, being a facilitator by trade um found myself on and off airplanes pretty quickly afterwards you know it was normal that yes. you know you get on you, you get going and um coming home from one uh, uh one trip for just up to sydney it was just up to sydney and back for the day i think it was and um there's a bloody Qantas ad that says i'm coming home i'm coming home oh, and there i was in my full corporate attire, this professional young person who works for PwC, crying, bawling her eyes out, bawling my eyes out. In you know, there's something about being at thirty thousand feet with music <laughs> and movies. Uh, it just it can be about any topic. I think it's just everything seems to be amplified emotionally. I think I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, and I promise you, I, I hadn't had a red wine um, on the on the five o'clock flight back. I just you know the music was going, and I realised I wasn't coming home. To mm. Jeremy, like That's I right. had, like I had been, and 
you know, that next day going into work. And I was flat. I. How can you not be? It was, yeah. I'd like to circle back at the conclusion with your advice and thoughts around how we deal, deal with grief in the workplace because you and I have discussed this at length. It's probably appropriate to take a, a right-hand turn now in your life to sort of say that um, it does go into a new phase with a new beginning. So when did you meet Casey and how did this transpire into falling in love again? Oh, this is a this is a good story, this one. Um, so I've had the, the wonderful fortune to to now be in a relationship with um, what can easily be described as um, you know my one of my best friends um, I've known Casey since we were you know first year of uni and um, and she has been she had been part of all of this so it's it's a really there's it, people often ask us like you know when is that moment that um, you know you kind of found yourself um, you know, being in love again and, you know, sort of thinking, you know, about the future and, and that kind of thing. And it's hard to pinpoint a, a, a day, a moment, a, a time because, um, you know, Casey has been part of all of it. Um, she she mm. saw she saw me get married. She mm. saw Jeremy get sick. She was uh, one of the first people through the door the day that Jeremy passed away. And she was... It's actually, you know, I've had I've had an epiphany as as we're speaking. Um, she was one of the people that never went away. When all of the the you know when when people are trying to support you through your grief and they're there for all of the big milestones and the anniversaries and everyone remembers on those days. Um, she was the person that was there on the boring days, on the just normal days. Mm. I think there's something about uh, friendship um, that's so important to to me. That's what Jeremy and I built our relationship off. We were we were best mates, mm. and um, as it turns out, you can you can uh, uh, fall in love uh, with your with your best friend twice. <laughs> were there friends or family that were shocked about that, or were they, or just think, or generally people were just so, just so happy for you that you'd fallen in love and here you were in this beautiful relationship that was moving forward the latter um i think probably surprising because um yes i um uh, had been had been married and to a man but it was just one of those things that just seemed to make sense right i am such a firm believer in um you know the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with needs to be the person that you laugh with and is your friend and Absolutely. all this sort of stuff. And I think there's something about the beautiful history that we've had um, that for people, whilst there might have been a little bit of shock, like, oh, um, that's a bit different, it was very quickly followed with, oh, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. Those two have um, looked after each other, loved each other and protected each other as friends um, for the best part of and knew the story. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and had been on the journey. You yeah, know. hate that word journey, but but it's sort of. But she had been with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So twenty twenty one, it's I imagine back into the Price Waterhouse world. Looking back, and you know, given that we've had these discussions, I mean, what sort of advice would you give to a workplace in terms of thinking about dealing with grief in the workplace? Because to me, it's one of those areas that we don't go to until it's happened. But in actual fact, we could do so much 
beforehand if we were prepared to have conversations about how we might collectively react as a community in what is, you know, I, I, in my life and I imagine in your life today, the most challenging of times that you've probably ever experienced. Yeah, it's something that I'm actually really passionate about. My background from a learning and development perspective is is very much in, in coaching and, and leadership. And, you know, I think about it, you know, this is such a significant thing to happen in a person's life. And so I guess what my advice is or, or what I know I choose to do as a leader myself is just encourage workplaces and teams of people to keep talking, to keep asking questions we spend thousands and thousands of hours and time and money and energy investing in you know people's performance and we do that by asking great questions you know helping unlock potential for people you know helping them think about their next career move so when you get to a place where something so significant happens for an individual that you work with or work alongside or is in your team why is it that we suddenly go silent it's curious isn't it I just can't help but wonder, you know, um, I get it, right? It's hard. You know, you're unsure of the reaction that you're going to get. You're nervous that it might bring something up for an individual. But everybody is an individual. Great leaders look at each of their team members and they understand the intricacies of each of them. So, for example, you know, a person like me, I love a chat. I love sharing my life. I share Jeremy's illness. So it makes sense that I would share his passing. Equally, another colleague might be your traditionally quiet um, person, doesn't share a lot about themselves. So no, it's probably not the best thing to say, so how are you feeling today? Did you have a cry or something like that? Because you're going to get a, a closed up shop. Look for the right questions. The difference between good leaders and great for me is the ones that look for the best question, look for a way to support a person as well as the team around them. Um, you know, as I said, people did weird things. <laughs> Random people hugged me. I was okay with that. I'm a touchy-feely kind of person, so it was okay. But that's probably not the best thing to um, for some people to experience. I mean, it's just not a conversation that we typically have had. And, you know, you've in being your background in learning and development psychology, I mean, we're, we're thankfully having discussions now and openly about mental health. Um, so we would we would talk about, you know, if you're suffering depression, classically the are you okay type of discussion. And fantastic that we are, but why aren't we talking about this subject, you know, a, a lot as well? Because, I mean, there is that, I, I remember, and I, I stand to be corrected, but, you know, I think it's like 15% of unresolved grief actually leads to mental illness. Uh, and I imagine depression and anxiety would certainly be, be those that would be as a result of that. So it's just not that hard to try because it, I sort of believe, and I, I mean this sincerely, obviously, is that it's, you know, something is better than nothing here. You just can't really get it that wrong if you've had some thought and preparedness around it collectively. And that's what I think leaders need to do in this sort of space is to engage their teams because, you know, you might be somebody that is, you know, not in any leadership position or management position, just an operational role, but you actually could have a role in this, albeit a small one. It could be just, you know, a cameo performance over the journey that could really lighten someone's load who is grieving. 
Yeah, I think um, I think the way I put it is, we in the workplace, great great leaders, good leaders, even just your average leader, we remember things like birthdays. We put it in a calendar. In fact, I'm sure there's software that helps a leader remember whose birthday is coming up. Or we look at milestones of tenure. Um, oh, great, it's somebody's five years. Let's send a bunch of flowers. If we could just pare back for a second and have a think about the fact that this there are mild, this is a significant event. Forget how scary it is or, or, or uncomfortable it is, but these are events that make up people's lives. And so, you know, when I think about some of the, the moments, um, even now, um, as I return to work, um, you know, I've got people in my organization that they remember. They know the day that Jeremy passed away or they know how significant um, birthdays are to us. And they ask the question, did you think about Jeremy today? Uh, you know, what was it? What was the celebration? Did you celebrate? Wh- whatever it is. And I just think that we have an opportunity to not close up the shop. It might be an unpleasant milestone, but it also shows people that you are thinking about them, that this person that is so important to them is not forgotten. And there is no such thing as moving on that doesn't exist um, and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected on that but nobody moves on but you do move forward and you take forward with you those incredible milestones and those events and if a workplace can engage in conversations if we could look at it at, at from a perspective of what are the events that make this individual who they are and engage in conversations around that then I think we we stand to create an environment that invites people to bring their whole self to work. Mm, I and agree. If, and if on one day that is a conversation that's a little awkward or on another day it's actually a really optimistic or empowering conversation that says, you know what, I'm actually really great today. Today is the anniversary of X and I feel great. The sun is shining. I'm actually seeing it for what it is. Thanks for asking. Thank you for asking because you know what? It does hurt when you think everyone has forgotten. It does. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's such a unique story, as I said in the outset. Um, and, you know, here you are with this gorgeous little baby uh, who thankfully barracks for Richmond Football Club. So he's <laughs> celebrating his first premiership as a five-month-old. <laughs> and uh, just once again, thank you very much for sharing your story on Adapting in My Grief. No worries. Thank you. I'm Milton Walters, and you've been listening to Adapting in My Grief. One of the goals of this podcast is to talk about how we deal with grief in the workplace and how we can possibly do it better. So head over to our website, adapting.com.au, to learn more or indeed share a story or an insight that you might have that you think could be of value to this end. During the conversations throughout the series, if there are any triggers that cause you concern, anxiety, or make you feel in any way uncomfortable, please seek professional assistance through some of the many great organisations providing invaluable mental health support and services, for example, Beyond Blue and Lifeline.
to name just a few. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to rate and review it and also to subscribe to it. This podcast is produced by Neely Media in Melbourne, additional sound engineering by I Explain IT in Port Ferry, and the music is by Sophia Whitney.